This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. So, we're going to get started because we just we ran out a little bit of time. I was almost done with the last presentation, and you know this is what happens when uh, preachers preach. Sometimes they get carried away a little bit in some details. We could spend so much more details on some of the things that I'm talking about here. I mean, there could be a whole lecture on the pyramids, a whole lecture on, on many of the things that we're talking about. Um, by the way, I want to say this, um, online uh, through GYC's website, and I don't know the exact um, address and everything, but there are resources there for you for this seminar. I'm not passing them out here, but... Um, I have, pub I have a number of publications that I have worked on over the years. If you want more detail and other publications that other scholars have written on this, if you want more detail on what we're talking about here um, and want to have the, the scientific evidence and all the footnotes and everything to go along with it, please go to those resources online. I have them available there as PDFs. You can download them. Some of them will be pretty technical, to be honest with you. I I've got some scientific articles in there. Um, others, but, but many of you are very educated, and I think that you can do well in, in, in looking through that. So I just want to mention that. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin this uh, second seminar. Heavenly Father, we are tracing the history of Moses and the Israelites as they have been in Egypt as slaves, as they leave Egypt, at the environment that they're in. And Lord, what we're interested in this seminar is this, not only to ground the Bible in history as your word but also to understand the challenges that Moses and the Israelites were up against by understanding the ancient uh, world of the Egyptians and to understand those challenges in the light of what we're facing today because they have not changed. The same religious uh, intensity that Moses faced, the same deceptions that Satan has for us, it has not changed over time. There's nothing new under the sun. So what we're wanting to do is, is glean insights from the world of the Bible, from the world of ancient Egypt, from those first five books of, of Moses, and to apply those to our lives today. And we ask your Holy Spirit to be present here as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we had just gotten through a bit of the, if you've joined us, we're, we're, we're tracing tracing the history of Moses and how he might have fit into Egyptian history. And we're doing that by looking at the 18th dynasty, by looking at biblical chronology, and then trying to figure out from biblical chronology where Moses fits in to that. Because we, as we mentioned in the previous seminar, there is no extra biblical evidence from Egypt or any... And somebody asked me in the break, what about other countries? There's no extra biblical evidence that we know of currently for the Exodus outside of the Bible. There's, there's no record that we have of that. The Egyptians don't record it, and I explained why in the previous seminar. There's another explanation I want to share here with you. Archaeology is a science. It is an art. It is a young discipline. We have only been working in the Middle East for 150 years. I say only because we're dealing with histories here that are thousands of years long. We're only, it's a young discipline, 150 years. We have made huge progress. Egypt is one of the most excavated countries in the world. Israel is one of the most excavated countries in the world. But I can tell you this, having worked there for 30 years, we have barely scratched the surface. 
we excavate a fraction of sites. I wish I had time to talk about some of the excavations that we're conducting right now from, with Southern Adventist University. We're only barely scratching the surface. We spend thousands of dollars a year going over there. We work. We have the largest excavation, by the way, right now. Southern and the Hebrew University have teamed up for the largest excavation in the Middle East. We're doing it right now. We've been conducting it for the last several years. We'll be back again this summer. If you guys are interested in going, see me. Julie went just a few uh, years ago, and it is an amazing experience. Talk to her if you want to know what it's like. My daughter is here. My wife is here. You can talk to them, too, if you want to know what life on a, a dig is like. So anyway, there's some seats in the front here if some of you still need seats, I think. There's one next to you. There's a couple here in the very front row if you want to get up close. I tell my students the front row seats are the A student seats, okay? All right. Yeah, there's some hands raised over here for more seats as well. So we've barely scratched the surface, so we don't know when something is going to turn up. Now, we, the, the, other, the other thing that's frustrating for me as a, as a historian and archaeologist is that Moses in the Bible doesn't give us the name of the Pharaoh. He doesn't give us the name of the princess that rescued Moses. That rescued him? Did he know those names? Absolutely. But he doesn't give us them. Does that mean he didn't care? No. It just means he didn't give it to us. And what do we do with that? Well, we have to guess. We don't have the names themselves. So what we're doing is we're going back in history looking at how Egyptian history lines up with the biblical history, and then we're making suggestions today as to who the pharaoh of the Exodus might have been, who the, 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 the queen, and we, we, we started by saying that there was a huge dynastic crisis, a huge dynastic crisis that festered over three generations, from Tutmosis I, who did not have a male heir, to Hatshepsut and her husband, Tutmosis II, did not produce a male heir, so he had to marry a secondary wife, Iset, who produced Tutmosis III. But when Tutmosis II died, remember we had the picture of his mummy up there, when Tutmosis II died, the big question was who was going to be king? Because Tutmosis III was two or three years old, because his father only was two or three years in office. And you don't want a three-year-old to be king of the greatest empire in the world at that time. Okay? So what happens? Hatshepsut asserts her dominance and becomes the first female pharaoh of Egypt. Unheard of in Egyptian history. Unheard of in Egyptian history, but she becomes. She does it carefully. She goes into a co-regency, you know what that is, where she and Tutmosis III are equally king over Egypt. But of course, he's two or three years old. So who's running the country? Hatshepsut is. Okay? She's running the country. She's running the country with who is Tutmosis III to her? If she's the half-brother to Tutmosis II, what is she to him? Nephew and aunt. It's a weird family thing. But by the way, this is not unusual. In Egypt, it was not unusual for people to marry their brothers to maintain the dynasty. By the way, this happened in Europe too, in the Middle Ages, right? And later on, what did they do to solidify power and to maintain power? They intermarried, and guess what? Catherine the Great was German, 
and she was the first cousin to the Prince of Wales in England. They were all interconnected. They are still all interconnected. When World War II broke out, it was a very awkward situation because the Windsors, the people who were, who were ruling in England, actually were German in heritage. And that's why there were alliances that Hitler was trying to make, not with Churchill, not with Chamberlain, but with the royal family because of that connection. Okay? So very interesting to look at history. We haven't changed much even in recent times. Now, we cannot conceive of this today, but this is what... So Hatshepsut and Tutmosis III become co-regents. And this is what I want to throw out to you today. Is it possible? And I'm not the first one to suggest this. In fact, if you look at the SDA Bible commentary, if you look at many other scholars that have been writing on this over the, over the years, is it possible that Hatshepsut was the princess that had actually rescued Moses? that day. That's what I want to throw out to you today. That's what uh, the SDA Bible commentary suggests, and that's what I suggested in my commentary that I've recently written as well. Why would an Egyptian princess adopt a Hebrew slave child? Have you ever wondered that when you've read this story? Does it make a little more sense now? There is a dynastic crisis. She does not have a baby. This is a problem. She wants an heir. Her, grand, her father the I wanted an heir. She wants an heir because it is the heir that is going to ensure that that dynasty, that family, remains in power in future generations. Okay, this is about power. This is about power. So much in the world today is about power. So I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine something. Not imagine it. Recollect it with me from Scripture. What happens? Moses is born. He's hid for a while by Jochebed, his, his biological mother, right? And then what does Jochebed do? She makes a little ark for him. It's interesting, that ark, isn't it? It's interesting that Noah was also saved in an ark with his family. So she makes a little ark for him, and she places him on the banks of the Nile, and she sends his older sister Miriam to watch over him there from a distance, Make sure no crocodile goes out and snatches him because there are crocodiles in the Nile. Make sure nothing happens that's going to be terrible. And then who comes along? The princess comes to bathe in the Nile. And she finds, she hears, maybe she hears the baby screaming, crying. Babies do that, you know. And uh, maybe she hears him. Maybe something else is happening, but she finds that baby in the ark that his mother had made. And she, the Bible says, takes pity on him as he's crying with her, takes pity on him and sees him. Do you think she knows that he is not an Egyptian baby? Yes, ethnically she knows that. But he was found in the Nile. I want you to think about that for a moment. Hapi is the god of the Nile. You see, the Nile is not simply a river that supplies life for Egypt. The Nile is a god in Egypt. You see, in Egyptian religion, in Egyptian religion, some estimate that there were 2,000 gods. Other recent scholars estimate there were thousands of gods, up to 22,000 gods in ancient Egypt. Why? Because Egyptians worshipped nature. Nature 
was their God. Everything in nature was deified. The animals were deified. The sun was deified. The moon was deified. The Nile was deified. All of these elements were deified, and they came up with elaborate cosmologies of how these things came about. When you read about Egyptian creation, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, meet, let's move on. So, Hapi, the god of the Nile, is the god of the Nile. And suddenly, what does she receive from the Nile? A gift, a baby, an heir to the throne. It is the gift of the Nile. Just as Herodotus called Egypt the gift of the Nile, now she receives a gift for the Nile. And it's interesting to look at what the biblical text says about this. It says, moving on in time, because remember, she then gives the, the baby back to Miriam, who finds her mother, and Jochebed becomes the baby's nurse, right? The, the wet nurse of the baby, which was very common, by the way, in Egypt to have a wet nurse. The child grew, and she, this is Jochebed, his biological mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her what? Her son, okay? And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now, there's a, a play on words here in Hebrew, and I believe there's also a very important uh, Egyptian connection here as well. Masas is the Hebrew term to draw out of. It's the verb to draw out of, masas. Does that sound a little bit like Moshe? Masas, Moshe. There's, so there's a little bit of a play on words here, but there's something more that's going on here as well because what we have going on here is also the fact that she has drawn him out of the water. And Moses is not a Hebrew name. Moses is not a Hebrew name. You talk to all the scholars out there, whether they are Bible-believing or secular, whether they're Egyptologists or not. Moses, everybody knows the consensus is Moses is not Egyptian. It's, it's an Egyptian name. It's Messe. It means son of, descendant of. Now, people say we don't have Moses' name in Egyptian records, but we do have Moses' name in Egyptian records. Not his direct name, but we have his ancestors' names. Achmose was the founder of the 18th dynasty. Achmose was the great-grandfather of Moses, and Achmose was the one that expelled the Hyksos out of Egypt. Ach means, and we'll find this out in a later uh, presentation, Ach means what? Ach means the vital force. It's the spirit. He's the son of the vital force. What is Thoth? Thoth, Thoth, Thoth. Everybody knows what Ra is, right? The sun god, Ra. So Ramesses is the son of the sun, of Ra. Okay? These are deified kings who have parents and, and who identify themselves with the deities. Thoth was the god of writing. Tut Ankh Amun, that's Thoth. That's Tut Ankh. Thoth Ankh Amun. Ankh means life or breath. Thoth is the life of eternity. That was Tutankhamun's name. Thoth is the life of eternity. So when Moses receives his name, he doesn't yet receive the theophoric element, the God element to his name, because that was usually given when a person became king of Egypt. Okay? But he is called Moses. He is called Moses by his adopted mother. So Moses was trained by the best teachers of Egypt, and if Hatshepsut was his adoptive mother. 
he grew up in the palace of Egypt. Uh, Ellen White tells us at the age of 12, that's the age when you became a man in biblical times, right? 12, that's when still today in Israel you have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. Um, this is when you become a man. And Moses, when he was 12, after his mother had reared him up to the age of 12, where did he go? He went to the palace. And that is where he was trained, are you with me, to be the next king of Egypt. To be the next king of Egypt. Now let's look at this. Who was Hatshepsut? Well, she was a woman. We talked about her already. When she became king, she shows herself. Does, do you not see her as a woman here? Is this not clearly feminine features here? Absolutely. Okay? She does not wear the beard in this particular sculpture of herself, but she has the Nemes headdress of the Egyptian pharaoh, and broken off the top of it is the striking cobra that we will talk about in a moment. Hatshepsut was a great builder. She built huge monuments, including her mortuary temple at Deir el-Bari. This mortuary temple becomes the model for temples in Egypt for the next 400 years. Okay, this is the temple that she built for herself and as her death monument. And uh, in that temple, on the side of that temple, is the famous Hathor uh, um, chapel. And in that chapel, there are scenes that legitimize Hatshepsut as the female pharaoh of Egypt. Let's look at that. Here we have a scene. I don't know if you can see it, but this is a giant cow with a sun disk between the horns. This is Hathor, the cow goddess. And leading Hathor is Amun-Re, the chief deity of Thebes. Uh, and this is basically a scene. And this is Hatshepsut. I don't know if you can see it, but she is gaining nourishment from the udder of her mother. Her mother Hathor is her divine mother. Amun, who is leading, is her divine father. And this legitimation scene tells everyone in Egypt, I am the God-given Pharaoh of Egypt. I am the son of Amun-Re. I am the son of, I'm the daughter of Hathor. Okay? This is very, very significant. Here's another legitimation scene uh, showing her with the serpent as the king of Egypt. This is Horus. The king becomes Horus incarnate. He becomes a god. And here you can see her wearing the double crown. Behind her is the sun disk with the serpent coming through. The serpent has an ankh around its neck. This is the symbol of eternal life. And she is given eternal life forever. We'll get into this in the next presentation. And... She made her monument to, this is, by the way, this is the inscription found on the obelisk that is erected for her, that she erected at Karnak Temple. This obelisk weighs a minimum of 380 tons, solid granite. It was shipped up from the southern part of Egypt, uh, from Aswan, 600 kilometers to where it was finally placed in the Karnak Temple. And this is what it says. It says, she made her monument to her father, Amun. Lord of the thrones of the two lands, upper and lower Egypt, the erecting to him two great obelisks. How many do you see there? Two. Those are hers. The erecting to him two great obelisks at the August Gateway Amun, great of majesty, made with fine gold because they were covered originally in gold. They illumined the two lands like the sun disk made for him by the what? The son of Ra. Why does a woman take the title the son of Ra? Because she's the first female pharaoh, and this is what all the titles of the previous pharaohs had. They were the sons of Ra. So she shows herself as a woman, but she takes on masculine titularies for her throne name. Okay? 
because it began in the feminine. She made her monument to her father Amun. Okay? Then it says, made for him by the son of Ra, Hatshepsut, Henenemet, Amun, given life like Ra, the son, eternally. Wow. By the way, this is an obelisk. We just said in the previous uh, presentation, what do we have standing in the mall in Washington, D.C.? An obelisk. Egyptian thinking and, and architecture continues even through modern times. Here is a, 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 a uh, scene of her barge, her ship, that carries the obelisk from 600 kilometers south up the Nile, or down the Nile, I should say, to Thebes. Can you imagine moving something that weighs 380 tons? You think the ancients were stupid? Were you know, lower in the evolving process of humanity? The Bible teaches opposite. The Bible teaches that the ancients from creation were perfect and that we have devolved ever since. It's a completely different worldview than evolution that goes like this. The at one goes like this. And when you look at Egyptian history, don't underestimate the ancient cultures. Here is the tip of one of the obelisks that Hatshepsut makes, and there is Amun-Re seated upon his throne as king of Egypt, and here he blesses his successor and his daughter, the pharaoh of Egypt, Hatshepsut, who is kneeling in front of him. So these are all found. By the way, you can visit still the quarry where these obelisks were carved, and you can find one there today in southern Egypt. You can find one at Aswan, still in the quarry. It cracked in the process of of manufacture and they left it where they found it. They decided not to finish it. It's still there today and you can see the tourists. You can see how big that thing is. Not as big as the Washington Monument, by the way. By the way, the Washington Monument is made up of pieces. These are one solid block of granite. One solid block of granite. That's what we have going on in Egypt. So there's Hatshepsut. All right, I need to end. At the court of Moses, at the court of Pharaoh, this is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 245. At the court of Pharaoh, Moses received the highest civil and military training. The monarch, this is now his grandfather, this is Hatshepsut's father, if this scenario is right. The monarch had determined to make his adopted grandson his successor to the throne, and the youth was educated for this high station. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were Moses... Who are you? What is your destiny going to be? That's the question that we're asking here today. What is our destiny going to be? You see, we are created in the image of God, but we are also created with the freedom of choice. And we have the power to choose, I believe, our destinies. Moses was faced with an enormous choice. Who was he going to become? Think about it for a moment. Was he going to be identified as a slave or prince of Egypt? Was he going to be identified as the son of Jochebed or the son of Hatshepsut who becomes Pharaoh of Egypt? Was he going to become identified as an Egyptian god, eventually, as he becomes crowned king of the most powerful empire to rule, I believe, in history? Somebody asked me in the break, well, how does Egypt compare 
with Babylon? How does Egypt compare with Rome? How does Egypt compare with all of these other empires? I don't know. It's a very difficult comparison to make. Militarily, I don't know. All I know is this. Egypt was around for thousands of years. Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon as we describe it in Daniel, was around from 605 to 539. Less than a hundred years. Medo-Persia, less than a hundred years. Then you've got, you know, then you've got Rome, hundreds of years, but its demise. Egypt was the father, ideologically, of all of the succeeding empires. That's why in the Bible, when you have the description of the antithesis to the ideology of the Bible, what does it refer to? It refers to Egypt and Babylon. Egypt and Babylon. They become the symbols of pagan thinking, of spiritualistic thinking, of the serpent's plan. And now we move to our next presentation. I'm sorry, but we need to do that. And I need to move through this one a little bit more quickly. I knew this would happen, but uh, let's move to the second presentation. I've entitled this presentation, The Seduction of Power, Egypt, and the Reign of the Serpent. And I'm going to uh, outline this as well, in this way. I'm going to talk, ask the question about the origin of evil. Where did evil come from? This is a very important question. It's a very important question today. People are asking this question today. People are wondering, especially in the times in which we live when we have evil taking place all around us. In global scales, in local scale, you know, when I was driving up from Christmas vacation, we stopped in a little place just north of here because we went up to Michigan. I live in Tennessee. It was great that GYC was in Louisville because it's right in the middle, right? So, so five hours from my house and then five hours from where my mom lives in Berrien Springs, Michigan. So we ran our way to Michigan. We stopped, we stopped here um, at a little outlet mall, not a big outlet mall, just north of here in Edinburgh, Indiana or something like that. Anyway, I don't know how it's pronounced, but Edinburgh. Anyway, we stopped there, and uh, as we were shopping, my wife was doing last minute some Christmas shopping and stuff. We were in a store, and the lady comes to us and says, are you guys, which high school do you girls go to? I've got two high school students that are here at GYC. And uh, we said, well, uh, we're actually not from the area. We're actually in transit. You know, we're, we're from Tennessee. Oh, she says, my girls had the day off school. And we're like, oh, good. So, so do our girls. She says, no, they were supposed to have school today but there was a bomb threat at their high school. This is in the heart of nowhere, Indiana. This is between Louisville and Indianapolis, okay? And I'm like, a bomb threat? Oh, yeah, she says. They closed everything down, and for the last two days, they've closed it down, and they actually found bombs in the schools. Wow. You know, what we hear on the news is a smattering of what is really taking place today is a smattering of what is really taking place today. You know, we had all this focus on, on the Syrian refugees for several weeks. Have you heard anything about it recently? No, but I got an email from my, from my cousin who is a nurse in Austria, and she has been volunteering on a regular basis in a, a large tent for Syrian refugees. They're still moving through Europe. They're still coming, but the news has moved on to something else. This earth today is in turmoil. There is, there is all kinds of things happening. There is violence everywhere. And where does it come from? We're going to talk about Egyptian religion and the choice that Moses had to make. So let's go forward.
Isn't that a beautiful scene? Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and God saw, I'm skipping now to 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. He repeatedly says it's good all the way through the narrative, and then he gets to the end and he says it was very good. We go on to the next chapter and we read, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. We have no hint in Genesis 1, no hint of evil, no hint of death. We have only God's declaration that everything that he planned in a systematic, orderly way from the first day of creation through the sixth day of creation, and by the way, they were literal days, Those six days of creation, those six days of creation were perfect when they were done. This is what Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets. She confirms what the Bible says in page 47. The creation was now complete. Eden bloomed on earth. Adam and Eve had free access to the tree of life. No taint of sin or shadow of death marred the fair creation. We cannot imagine that, can we? Because everything that we know in our lives is marred with sin and death. Everything that we know. We live, we die. Plants live, they die. Everything has a beginning and an end. Everything moves. And if we were just to understand things on the basis of what we see and what we observe, there would be no hint of this that there was not to be death in this planet from the beginning because everything we know is marred with sin and death. Think about that for a moment. If you were just to observe, and yes, this is God's second book, but if you were just to observe what takes place in our world, what would your conclusion be about the origin of evil and the origin of death? This is what the Egyptians were faced with. They were great thinkers, by the way. Don't underestimate the ancients. This is what they were faced with and what succeeding philosophers and thinkers were faced with without the Bible. So where does evil come from? Sorry, we could have put a lot of different pictures up here. We could put children starving in Africa or even on the streets of United States cities. We could put a lot of things that exemplified evil here. My family grew up in Nazi Germany during the Second World War and and I can tell you many stories. Maybe I will have some time to do that during the seminar. But it was a very terrible time in Earth's history. Where does death come from? Well, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is, was to come. Romans 5, 14. 1 Corinthians 15 says... For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be what? Made alive. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 8.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the wages of sin? Death. So before there was sin, was there death according to Paul? No. According to what we read in Genesis, was there death? No. 
It came after sin. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Last year's seminar, I spoke on the principles of historical criticism in biblical and scientific scholarship. And the third principle of historical criticism is methodological doubt. The way scientists are to approach the world around them to assess reality or not reality is critically, you've heard of the term critical thinking, with methodological doubt. It was not introduced by God, it was introduced by the serpent. Did God really say this? Doubt. Doubting God's word. Doubting the Bible. Doubting what has been handed down to us through inspiration through centuries. Doubting. You know, it's very easy for us to doubt. We see this in the children of Israel. It was very easy for them to doubt. After everything that they saw, I'm getting ahead of myself, I know, but what was the first thing that they began to do when they got into, out of Egypt? Doubt. Doubt. And we do it too. Sorry, what happened just now? Oh, I did something here. Sorry. All right. Listen to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 53. Satan chose to employ as his medium the serpent, a disguise well adapted for the purpose of deception. Ah, that's what he's all about. Deception. Doubt and deception, because through doubt he can deceive. We can be easily deceived. The Bible says, Jesus says, at the end of time, even the very elect can be deceived and will be deceived. We need to be careful today that we are not deceived. Satan chose as disguise to, to, uh, to, for his purpose of deception. The serpent was then one of the wisest and most beautiful creatures on the earth. I cannot imagine that, but that's what it says. It had wings. And while flying through the air, presented an appearance of dazzling brightness, having the color and brilliancy of burnished gold, resting on the rich-laden branches of the forbidden tree and regaling itself with the delicious fruit, it was an object to arrest the attention and the delight of the eye of the beholder. I want to ask you today, do we have things in our world and in our lives that are capturing the eye of the beholder. Everywhere. Everywhere. We need to beware because the same trick that Satan used in the garden, he has not changed. He's using it. He's perfected it. Oh, he has perfected it. But he is continuing to use the same principles today. We need to be careful. So here we are, Satan. Now the big question that we have is this. And it is the same question that Eve and Adam and Eve had then and that we have today. Do we trust in the Word? Do we trust in Scripture? Do we trust in what God says, or do we rely on the senses? Another way to put this is, do we trust in the Word, or do we rely on our reason and our experience? You know, it is amazing today 
how religion and the world is changing. We have been called the people of the book, but I'm afraid sometimes that, that emotions and experience are really taking over in unprecedented ways. Not only the Christian community outside of our church, but even in many places in our church as well. We need to be careful, careful to rely on the Word of God and to use our faculties of reason. Yes, God gives us a wonderful experience, but we, it is not an experience that does not constitute a continuation of what God is. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. So, let's continue. The ancient pyramids. Why do I go back to them? We're not going to talk about them much. We want to just remind ourselves that the Egyptians were obsessed with death. But they were obsessed with death, I believe, because of something that God has placed in each one of us. Each one of us has a desire to live. You see, we were not created to die. We were created to live. We were not created to die we were created and placed in a beautiful garden to live. We had access to the tree of life. And as long as we had access to that tree of life, we had eternal life. And we are promised when we are in our heavenly home, we will again have access to that tree of life. And the healing leaves from its branches and we can have eternal life. The innate desire for us to live is the same for the Egyptian, the Babylonian, Today, the Muslim, the Christian, the Hindu, the Buddhist, it is the same desire because that is something that God has placed in our hearts. That's how we have been created. That's how we've been wired. We've been wired to live. That's why whenever death takes place, it is still foreign. And it confronts the lie that Satan has given to us that we will live forever and that there is no death. This idea, by the way, that originated in Egypt, in the pyramids. Ecclesiastes, Solomon puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 11. He, God, has put eternity in their hearts. I think that expresses what we just described. And the pyramids and the, the worldview, the ideology of the ancient Egyptians was seeking that life, only they were seeking it from the wrong, wrong side. James P. Allen, a very famous Egyptologist, now at Brown University, president of the International Association of Egyptologists, writes that the pyramids provided the power for the reunion of the body, the ba and the ka, inside the sarcophagus. It was a resurrection machine to spew out the individual, the deceased, into the eternal heavens, to reign with Ra as the sun setting and rising in the cyclical uh, moments of history. Here is the way National Geographic put it. There is Horace leading a deceased individual out of his coffin. You see it there? And what does the Book of the Dead say? Raise yourself. You have not died. Your life force will dwell with you forever. This is Egyptian teaching. This is not only Egyptian teaching, this is in many places, in world religions and even in Christianity, the teaching. Your spirit, as soon as you die, it goes somewhere, okay? 
This is not biblical teaching, because in biblical teaching, the dead know nothing. In biblical teaching, we are asleep until he calls us on the resurrection day. In the biblical teaching, we know nothing, and it will be a moment, and we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Here is what uh, the book of the dead says. I come forth in daytime in my true form as a living spirit. Do you see that? This is not our true form, in other words, in Egyptian thinking. This, this human body and this form, our true form is a spirit form. That's dangerous thinking. That's spiritualism through and through. Okay? I come forth as a living spirit. My heart's desire is among the living in this land forever. Well, that's true maybe for human nature, but how they arrive there is very, very different. Let's look at the Egyptian soul for a moment. There were three parts to the Egyptian soul. I want to go through this quickly. The first one is the Ach. Remember Achmose, the first king of the 18th dynasty? Ach. Joining, the, the definition is the joining of the stars. Ach is often translated as a spirit or spirit state. It derives from the term radiant light written with the crested ibis bird. This is the symbol for the Ach. Here we have another part of the Egyptian idea of the soul. The Egyptian ka, represented by the uplifted hands. The most succinct translation is life force. The ka was characterized by its transferability and commonality. Life force. Have you heard about that? Is it around in our culture today? Do we talk about the life force? Maybe I shouldn't put this picture up here. Last week, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, friends, Star Wars grossed more money than any other movie in history. Star Wars came out. Now, look at the quote here from a previous episode. And by the way, I want to tell you, I did not watch Star Wars when it came out, and I have not watched Star Wars, and I'm not planning to watch the Star Wars movie. And I would hope that many of you do not, well, maybe some of you have already. I'm not going to go there. But I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to say this. We need to be careful. Because the same images that drew Adam and, Adam and or Eve to the tree of knowledge of good and evil have been perfected over the last 6,000 years. And they are being used with greater intensity and greater directness today than ever before. And I, I have to admit to you, when I was young, I was enamored by movies. I grew, up with, I grew up with the television that we were not allowed to watch ever, except for Little House on the Prairie, The Waltons, and sometimes Disney if there were no magic things in it, like Old Yeller or something like that. So that's how I grew up. And when I, when I got to high school and my friend invited me over to study physics in his home, he had the Star Wars episodes, and I was enamored. High school. 17 years old. They came out, you know, in the 70s, so I was alive when they came out. <laughs> <clears throat> so, look at what, look at what, sorry, I'm going to refer to some names here. They come back from my, my past, okay? Obi-Wan Kenobi, what does he say in, in one, of the, one of the previous episodes when he faces Darth Vader? Strike me down and I will become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. If that doesn't send chills down your back, and what does he do in the following movies? He talks to Luke. 
Sorry, if you don't know it, don't watch it. Okay, just just sharing with you something here. What is the new Star Wars movie called? The Force Awakens. It is more, I believe, more directly aimed at this generation than ever before. I just watched one preview, and I'm not going to show it here because it, it puts chills down my back. It, it begins like this. I think it's one of, I think it may be Luke Skywalker speaking. But it says, my father had it. My sister had it. I have it. You have it too. That's the, that's the trailer. That's the trailer. You have what to? The force. The force is within you. The force awakens. What force, I want to ask? What force? This is diabolical, friends. You know, in, in the past, we always thought, oh, well, this is like the great controversy being played out in space. That's what I thought when I was a kid. You know, I was like, oh, this is really cool. You know, I can watch this, and it can be really cool because it's like, you know, Satan and God and all. No, because um, the good force and the bad force are kind of the same thing, only two sides. It's kind of a yin and yang effect. Anyway, I'm not going to go into that. I just want to share with you, this is Eastern mysticism, and it is going back to ancient Egypt. The Egyptian ba, that's the third part of the, of the Egyptian soul. The ba is the individual renown or distinctive manifestation, if you will, the character of the individual with a full corporeal mode of existence. That means a body, okay, with the ability, for instance, to eat, to drink, to copulate. So this is another aspect of the afterlife, okay, the third aspect. And here is an Egyptian uh, text uh, from, a, from this, uh, from this uh, papyrus here, you can see the ba bird above the mummy. May it see my corpse, may it rest on my mummy, which will never be destroyed. Or, I can't read the rest, but it's only one more word. Anyway, which may never be destroyed. What was the importance of mummification? It was so that the ba bird could return to the tomb and leave the tomb and could recognize the deceased. And without mummification, without the... The, the preservation of the physical body, the ancient Egyptian would not live into the afterlife. That's why mummification was important. We're not going to go into all the aspects of mummification today, but I want to show you this image. This is the first pyramid ever built in Egypt. It's known as the Step Pyramid of Saqqara. They, they worked on building these pyramids until they, they were able to uh, achieve what they achieved at Giza, what we saw in the previous presentation. And here we have... Um, the pyramid in the background, and the temple that is dedicated to that pyramid. And on the crest of that temple, what do you see? Serpents. This is the first pyramid, folks. This is in Dynasty Three of ancient Egypt, not in the 18th Dynasty when Moses is around, not in the 12th Dynasty when Joseph is around. Okay, this is in the, in the beginning of Egyptian history. The serpent, in fact, in the pyramid texts associated here at Saqqara, the serpent is everywhere. Why? Because it is dominant in Egyptian religion and thinking. At Deir el-Bari, the Temple of Hatshepsut, if you go behind that cliff where the arrow is pointing, I was there some years ago with a group of students. That's us walking up. That's me right here, actually. I didn't take the picture. Walking up to the, to the tomb of the III. Yes, you can go inside his tomb. The same the III that was co-regent with Hatshepsut that we talked about. We were going up to see him. Tutmosis III's tomb, he was co-regent. As we will see, after Hatshepsut died, he becomes fully king. He reigns for 54 years on the throne of Egypt. And inside his tomb, 
We went inside. This was the first time I visited the tomb. I had a very scary experience. We went inside the tomb, and, and there's this, the tomb has, has uh, this, this elaborate, I mean, there's a system of getting into the tomb where you're going through a corridor, and then there's this so-called, this is what the tour guide told us, a well of souls, where <laughs> this deep thing where, where there's a little plank going over it, and if you fall in there, you're not going to get out. I mean, it's, it's a very, very deep, deep uh, uh, part there. And then you continue going on, and then you end up eventually in the burial chamber. There's other side rooms and so forth. You end up eventually in the burial chamber. It's a very large tomb. And this is the burial chamber, and this is the sarcophagus out of rose granite for Thutmose III. His mummy is not there. It's now in the Egyptian Museum. But when we were in there in 1988, I was still a student, undergraduate student, the lights went out. You know, in Egypt, you have, you have problems sometimes with electricity. It's a third world country, and so the lights went out. And I, let me tell you, you don't want to be in an Egyptian tomb when the lights go out. You can't see anything. You can't see your hand in front of you. I mean, it was, and then you're in a tomb. Now, I do not believe, as I just mentioned a moment ago, that the dead are alive. Are you with me? But I do believe in spiritualism, and I did not want to be in that place at that point in time. And I was, luckily, a few of us had thought ahead of time, and in our little backpacks, we had flashlights, we turned them on, we began to look around, and our, our aim focused on the scenes on the side of the tomb. And what do you see as a central figure on the scenes on the side of the tomb? A serpent. And that serpent is leading a barge that is a ship carrying the king through the 12 hours of the night into the afterlife. I want to talk to you a little bit about what this means, the death rituals in the afterlife. It's known as the umduat. The umduat basically means the bowels. Not very nice, is it? So the intestines. And, and, and what, why? Well, that which is in the underworld. God's journey through the 12 divisions of the underworld. In other words, in the darkness to emerge again in the light. What does the sun do? It rises in the morning and sets in the evening. It rises in the morning, it sets in the evening. And you have the cyclical view of life. I think Disney called it the circle of life. Are you with me? That's what the Egyptians are talking about, the circle of life all the way around. And this is how they viewed it. This is the Egyptian cosmology. Now, don't focus on the nudity here. That's just how they were. But that is the goddess. That is the goddess Newt. She's the goddess of the heavens. And in the evening, she swallows the sun. In the evening, as the sun is setting in the west. By the way, in the west... That is why you have the pyramids all to the west of the Nile River. And the mortuary temples and the tombs of Egypt are to the west of the Nile River. They're not to the east. That's where the dead are buried, to the west. All of them. You go to, you go to Thebes in the, in the central part of Egypt, they're in the west. The mortuary temples, the Valley of the Kings, where King Tut's tomb was found, we'll talk about that. They're in the west. The pyramids are in the west. Why? Because that is where the sun sets. That's where the deceased enters into the underworld. That's where Newt swallows the sun. And who is the Egyptian king? He is Ra. He is the sun. He is Horus. I mean, there's a lot of different. So, swallows the sun, and then what happens? During the 12 hours of the night, you know, the, the, the day has about 24 hours, right? During the 12 hours of the night, that sun is passing through the underworld, passing through the body of Newt. 
passing through the body of Newt, the bowels, if you will, of Newt, only to emerge to be reborn in the morning as it rises in the east. This is sun worship. And this is central to Egyptian cosmology. It was, it was, it was convenient that the Nile ran from south to north. And so the Nile was part of this cyclical idea. It was part of this cyclical idea. The Nile was in the center. The sun set on one side of the Nile, rose on the other. The Nile was part of that, of that cosmology. By the way, we'll talk about some of these other gods here in a moment as we get on to other things. Now, now, look at this. I want to go back with you to Genesis, and I want to put some things together here, and it may sound a little crazy, okay? But I've studied this for a number of years, and I am convinced that what we're dealing with in Egypt is nothing more than the continuation of the religion and ideology of the serpent in Genesis all the way through thousands of years of history, okay? So let's look at this carefully. The serpent was one of the wisest. We just read this in the passage a few moments ago, right? I want a close-up of the serpent. Above the serpent's head is the Ankh symbol. Above the head of the serpent is the Ankh symbol. The Ankh is the symbol for eternal life. In Egyptian mythology, the serpent was the guide into eternal life. Was the guide of the pharaoh when he died through the 12 hours of the night was the guide into eternal life. Now, there were other serpents. Um, there were other... The, the Egyptians had this love-hate relationship with the serpent. They feared the serpents because of their poison, and they loved the serpent because of its powerful protection. Because if the serpent was on your side, he would poison other people, but if he was against you, he would, you know, so you have this kind of uh, uh, situation. And so you can read this as time goes on in the text. So here is this Ankh symbol. In the 10th hour of the night, you have this fascinating symbol here, this scene. I want to just go through this scene with you a little bit. You have a winged serpent on legs. You have the god Amun, which is the god of creation. This is not, I'm sorry, not Amun, Atum. Atum, which is the god of creation. You have the eyes of, of you have the eye of Horus here. You have another serpent over here. You have ten stars, which indicates you're in the tenth hour of the night. And you have, and I'm not making all this up, by the way. There, there are books being written on this by Egyptologists that have studied this for years, okay? I'm not making this stuff up. But what is in front of this serpent here again? Eternal life. The serpent has the breath of eternal life, okay? So I'm circling that here. And the serpent said to the woman, what did he say to her in Genesis chapter 3? You surely shall what? Not die. Was that a direct contradiction of what God had said? A direct contradiction. You will surely not die. And why? I've got something for you. You're not going to die. You're going to gain wisdom, understanding. You're going to experience something different than you've ever experienced before. This was seduction in its truest form. Professor Manfred Lurker of the University of Salzburg, an Egyptologist in his book on the gods and symbols of ancient Egypt, writes this, the hieroglyphic sign of the Ankh means life and as a symbol points to the divine, the eternal existence. A god in this scene holds the Ankh before the king's nose, giving him the breath of life. What an antithesis to what God does in Genesis chapter 2. When he stoops over 
the man that he has just formed. And what does he do? He breathes into him the breath of life. In Hebrew, ruach. What an antithesis to that. By the way, when my firstborn daughter was born, I'll tell you the story. It was a magical moment. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are to experience that in the future. It was a magical moment. I shouldn't use that word. It was a God moment. <laughs> you know how I'm using that term. It was an incredible moment. And uh, they wrapped my daughter up, cleaned her up a little bit. I was holding my wife's hand still. And then the nurse called me over to the little warming light and, and place where they were weighing my child. Some of you are nurses. You've seen this many times. For me, it was a brand new thing. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it in my life with my daughter. So here's this little newborn child on this scale or whatever it was with this warming light above her. And the nurse says, I want you to stand right here. And I want you to look down. I said, okay, I'm doing what you tell me to do. You know, when you're in that situation, you do exactly what the nurses tell you to do. You know, you don't, you don't mess around with the nurses and, and the doctors. You do exactly what they tell you to do. So, so I'm looking down, and I had no idea what she was going to do, but she knew what she was going to do. She had maybe done it many times with other parents, new parents. She turned off the warming light. My daughter's eyes were tight shut with that bright light shining down on her. When the light went off, in my mind, she opened her eyes for the first time. And she stared into my face. Now, I know what you're thinking, those of you who are nurses. She probably couldn't see that far at first. I don't know how far a newborn baby can see and how blurry my face. Hopefully, it was really blurry. Otherwise, it would have been quite a shock for her. But anyway, um, it was her mother's face she was supposed to see first. But anyway, so, so she, she stares up at me. And I cannot describe to you the feelings that surged through my heart at that moment. This is my child. This is a God-given gift to me. The awe, the helplessness of this child as, as she's gazing into my eyes and, and the responsibility and the humility that I felt at that moment. What am I going to do now? Totally new experience. I tasted for the first time a little bit, just a glimpse, just a tiny, maybe God wants us to experience this of maybe what Jesus experienced that day when Adam opened his eyes first and looked into the face of his creator. God allows us to be part of procreation because he wants us maybe to experience what he experiences. Maybe. You know, Satan didn't have that opportunity, did he? That was part of his jealousy about human beings and about God. You read about it in the great controversy. At any rate, so you have this breath of life. So you have this ankh symbol right in front of her. But the text doesn't, continues. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. How long is this session going? Okay. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Okay? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to show you something here. Do you see the eyes on either side of this? I'm not going to get in. I don't have time to get into it. The eyes of Ra and Horus. There's, these are Egyptian magic symbols, and I don't want you to do this ever. I don't want you to go on the internet and start looking up the occult, but these symbols are everywhere in the occult, okay? And I haven't gone into depth in studying them. I don't want to go into depth in studying them. I tell you that right now. And when I study Egyptian religion, I have to pray a lot because I am studying the occult firsthand. 
But this is the, your eyes will be opened and you will see. This is what Satan promises us. As if we can see more with Satan than we can see through the inspired word of God. What a contrast. What a change. All right? And you will be like God, knowing what? Knowing good and evil. I'm not going to go into all the symbology of this. By the way, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that what Satan promises us? We are going to be our own gods. Isn't that what the pharaohs believed themselves to be? Let me tell you something. If you go into a religious setting or, or, or philosophical thinking where you start worshiping nature, what happens eventually, and Romans, Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 1 very eloquently, you will start worshiping what? Yourself, because you are part of nature. And you will start going down that path. This is a very dangerous path to go to. This is the creator God holding the wings of the serpent who is guiding the king into eternal life. This is what an Egyptologist, a very famous, famous German, Swiss Egyptologist writes about the conception of God in ancient Egypt. This is published by Cornell University Press, an Ivy League institution in the United States. And this is what he says about what we just looked at. Against a backdrop of scars, stars stands a winged snake with two pairs of legs. A caption tells us, this is what the hieroglyphics are saying. Death, the great God who made gods and men. Did you catch that? Death, the great God who made gods and men. Are, are you kidding me? Death is the God that made us? In Egyptian thinking, death and life are part of a cycle that has always been and always will be. And this is part of what they taught back then. I don't have time to go into all of this from King Tut. I will tell you this, though, in closing, that throughout King Tut's tomb, the image of the serpent is everywhere. In, his, in the shrine that is guarded by the gods, uh, you have his canopic jars where his livers, his intestines, his lungs, his stomach were contained. These are the organs of the king. By the way, the heart remained in the body of the mummy. Okay, the heart remained in the body of the mummy, but the intestines were taken out, the stomach, and placed in these special canopic jars. They're protected by the serpent all around the shrine above them. The king's throne, which was found in his tomb, this is King Tut's tomb's throne. You have his name, and on either side of his name, you have his name on this side of his chair and on this side of his chair, and you have a winged serpent with his arms, with his wings stretched out, protecting the name that is the being of the king. And he wears the double crown of upper and lower Egypt. Here you see a sign, a symbol of it on the other side. That's King Tut's name there, right there. In another tomb, this is the tomb of Seti II. You have on either side, this is leading into the burial chamber. There's the sarcophagus. And above the burial chamber, on either side, you have a winged serpent shadowing the name of the king who is a god. Now, if that is not reminiscent of something, I'm going to read it to you from Ezekiel chapter 28. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the firing stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Who is this a description of? Lucifer. Lucifer was one of those covering cherubs. Do you think it's a coincidence that he puts a winged serpent on either side? What, what, what symbology do we have of the throne of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant in the sanctuary? The mercy seat where God's Shekinah glory rests has a covering cherub on either side. And Ellen White describes those wings like this, very similar to what we have here as well. I mean, you look through the amulets found in King Tut's tomb, and it is amazing. Here you have Horus, here you have the Ankh, and here you have the serpent on either side of the name, protecting the name. Here you have a winged scarab with the sun. The scarab creates the sun. On either side, a striking cobra, the Ankh symbol. This is beautiful. These are precious stones and solid gold. Here you have the king himself lifting up the eye of Horus which also is or the eye of, eye of Ra, representing the sun. On either side, the serpent with the sun disk above him. It's incredible to see this, but this one is the scariest of all, or the, maybe the int most interesting of all. Two winged deities standing on either side. Here you have a serpent with the crown of Upper Egypt. Here you have a serpent with the crown of Lower Egypt. And here you have the king's name. And in the center is a strange symbol with a sun above it. I want to read to you what this symbol means. It is the jed column associated with the spine, and it represents um, uh, something very important in, in history. Um, it represents eternal life, and it represents the divine and the spine of the divine being. So this is, this is the spine of the king. We saw the king in the center of all of this prior to this time. Here is his cartouche on either side being encircled by the serpent. This is his name, his personal name. Here is the spine. What does it have above it? The sun disk. Now, I was presenting this at evangelistic meetings some years ago in St. Louis, and this is what happened. I know I have to quit here, and, and I, I need, no, I need to quit. This is what happened. A lady came to me after I presented just some of what I'm presenting here, not all in de detail, just some of it. A lady came up to me afterwards, and she says, I'm a yoga instructor. And do you know... What you shared was fascinating. I said, really? Why? I don't do yoga. I don't know much about yoga. She says, because we teach in yoga that there is a serpent within. And that serpent, the goal of yoga is to erect that serpent along the spine and to create enlightenment as a result of yoga. So I looked it up yesterday in the computer because I'm still, you know, tweaking this presentation. Or maybe it was two days ago. I looked this up. I looked this up. You want to see what it is here? Well, let me tell you first of all what it's called. It's called in yogic theory primal energy or shakti, different spiritual traditions, teaching methods of awakening, kundalini, for the purpose of reaching spiritual enlightenment. Kundalini is described as lying coiled at the base of the spine, represented as either a goddess or sleeping serpent, waiting to be awakened in modern commentaries. Kudalini has been called an unconscious, instinctive, or libidinal force. All right. This is off the internet. This is from a yoga website. What do you think? I want to just show you two serpents, and what is at the top? The brain... Okay, I'm, I'm not going any further. Let's, uh, let's end with this. You can look it up on YouTube. 
No, not YouTube. Just Google it. All right. That's all I did. It was easy. I was, I was there in, in two seconds. It's, it's all over the web. Okay, very quickly. The Egyptian pharaoh had a serpent on his forehead, right? He would spit at his enemies. There is the king, King Tut, as he was found in his burial chamber. And on his neck, protecting his neck and his vocal choirs, was this winged serpent in beautiful gold, fine gold. It was in an exhibit in Atlanta recently. I took a picture of it. I want to just contrast with you that image and Moses and Aaron arriving at the court of Pharaoh. And what was the first sign that Aaron and Moses did before Pharaoh? They cast down Aaron's rod, and what happened to it? It became a serpent. Pharaoh is sitting on his throne. He has a serpent on his forehead, as all the Pharaoh's crowns have. He's sitting there on his throne with the serpent imagery. He is the enlightened king and god of Egypt, and the serpent appears before him. And Pharaoh says, oh, this is just magic. This is no big deal. I'm going to bring on my own mag magicians. And the magicians come, and they throw down their, their, their uh, staffs, right? Listen to what Ellen White says about that. The magicians also showed signs and wonders, for they wrought not by their own skill alone, but by the power of their god Satan, who assisted them in counterfeiting the work of Jehovah. But they could only counterfeit it so much, because what happened? Aaron's rod ate all the other snakes. Was that not a demonstration of God's power? It was absolutely a demonstration of God's power. So what then was the lifting of the serpent in the wilderness when all the snakes came out? How do we explain that? It's kind of strange, isn't it? That, that, that Moses would be instructed by God to lift up a serpent and whoever looked at it would be healed uh, of the snake bites. Uh, well, let's read about it in John 14, 3, 14, 15. This is, by the way, just before John 3, 16, which all of you have memorized. Famous, uh, famous passage. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is speaking. He says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God took on all of the power of the serpent at the cross for you and for me. He didn't die of his wounds. He died of the press of the sins of this world from the beginning of the fall all the way to the end of time. That is what crushed his heart at the cross. He took it on all. He became, he became, he was perfect in his life, never sinned, but he took on all of that for us. This is what we read in closing in John 16, 33. And uh, Desire of Ages 122. And by passing over the ground which man must travel, our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. It is not his will that we should be placed at a disadvantage in the conflict of Satan. He would not have us intimidated and discouraged by the assaults of the serpent. He says instead, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. We do not have to be afraid of the power of the serpent today because we serve a more powerful God who created all things. And we're going to move into that topic next. And I'm sorry I went over. Let's take a break for five minutes and we'll be back. Thank you.
This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.